you know, we're in this series in the Sermon on the Mount, and on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount are these collection of sayings, and they, that's very well, that may be how you relate to the Beatitudes, as a collection of pithy stay, sayings, almost like Proverbs, but Proverbs 2.0, because it's shorter, and it's in the New Testament, so it's obviously better. Um, that was a joke, by the way, we, we love the whole of scriptures. Uh, but what we get in the Beatitudes is this this density of beauty and significance and invitation, an invitation to the way that Jesus is going to move in the world. And what becomes so plainly obvious is that Jesus is the one who fully embodies these realities because the message that Jesus carries is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the way that things are, are not that the way that they have to be, that there's actual shifts that can take place in the course of human history. And Jesus is inviting people into that reality, as well as saying that there are people who are embodying that reality. And we'll get into that in a moment. I mean, I was just, uh, you start thinking about peacemaking and what does that mean? And I just was reflecting on the time that we've been here in Des Moines. You know, it's curious, we, uh, my family moved to Des Moines in the November of an election cycle. So it's the year before an election, I suppose, November 2019 specifically, which means that some of my first moments in Des Moines, they were colored by the infamous Iowa caucus. And this is the one that went really well, by the way. Uh, so, the, the, and the energy was curious. You know, so, so um, in this, we have an office in the back now where we're really fortunate to put our stuff, which is really sweet. But before that, we had a desk, a couple of desks over in this uh, northeast corner. And on that corner, uh, as the caucuses were kind of on the horizon, there was like people. This is crazy. I know it's been two years of like, I know Des Moines downtown is not like a bustling place. Hashtag Skywalk, I guess. But um, there was people walking around with cameras, like people setting up tripods with their phone and like standing there looking official with the, the, the Des Moines mural in the background. There was some energy going on and I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm a little bit more extroverted, FYI. So I was enjoying that type of energy. Uh, but it was curious because it seemed like the candidates were more interested in the Iowans than the Iowans were interested in the candidates. I don't know if that is something you would relate to, uh, which, by the way, is kind of funny when people are like, just like, oh, yeah, that, I guess that's an elected official, whatever. And so the most interesting thing that I saw in the midst of all of that was not like Bernie eating at a deli or Kamala talking to someone on the street. The most interesting thing that I, I saw and the thing that was the most surprising to me was this undercurrent of division. And here's what I mean. See, most days when I come downtown, I get to take DART, Des Moines Area Transportation. And so I roll on the bus from the Ingersoll Corridor right on down. So really what that means is all I see is like Ingersoll, Locust, and Grand. <laughs> That's my, you ask me where something is in Clive. I don't know. What's Clive? I'm still learning these things. And if you ever figure out what is up with the Clive, Waukee, what, what, what happened there, folks? I don't, I don't know. Um, it, it's irrelevant to what we're talking about here. Only to say this, I have had opportunities to venture out of the city, and it's really, this is by choice. Like, I, I wanted to take public transportation because I'm, I'm weird. And so I'm coming, and I, when, my, when I would venture outside of the city center, it was like my world would expand. And you know, what was really funny is there was a shift that struck me. 
is we'd get in our car and we'd head out to, I don't know, some shopping complex. And if you were to map that with like a political color schema, it would be like moving from a, a blue zone to a red zone. And, and do, you, do you have any idea? Like how do you know when you're moving from a blue zone to a red zone? Do you have any guesses? How, how do you know that? Boom, baby. Signage. Yes, it's remarkable. All, it's like the bumper stickers of houses, lawn signs. All of a sudden, they, they have the same color scheme, but all of a sudden, the language is a little bit different, and, and sometimes like inflammatory in both directions, for sure. But it was so surprising. All of a sudden, the signage is, is different. And what I started to reflect on was just how those little signs with broad brushstrokes start to paint this larger picture of this undercurrent of division. And it's not just something that is like out there. It's something that is inside of us. It's something that we carry with us. And I think it's something that I experienced here. See, as the election went on, um, I have this personality, I don't know, characteristic where I think it's kind of enjoyable to press the button. My wife calls it poking the bear. She says, you're poking, stop, okay? Um, so we would have conversations about our former president and there would be, and you know, sometimes you just press the button, you'd press it just to see what would happen. And you just sit back and you watch the interactions. And for some people, that's a good time. For others, it's anxiety inducing. Uh, but, but <laughs> What I experienced was like, oh my gosh, that, that thing, it's not, it's not just like out there ambiguously, it's in here, it's in me. Like I feel that same sense of division. And a recent poll by uh, the Public Religion Research Institute confirms this. At the close of 2021, they found that nearly half of Americans feel that their family is more divided now than it was two years ago. And if, if that's interesting to you, following the January 6th insurrection, like how we attend to that division is even more divisive. So another, in another set of data, they found that one in five Americans agree with the following statement. Because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. So regardless of your political persuasions, just let that sink in. You know, there are roughly 330 million Americans. And you figure a fifth of that. That's 66 million people who are green lighting. Maybe it's a yellow light, but saying violence is a way forward to some sort of solution. 66 million are willing to resort to violence to get back to a place of equilibrium or calm. And what's even more striking is that if you start to look at some of the subsets of this data, is that white evangelicals, and that's a specific, like that's not me trying to be punchy, like that's a specific polling category, white American evangelicals, are 25%, like they're the, they're, basic, they're the highest percentage of people to agree with this statement of religious subgroups. By the way, this is not like my attempt to like get a, a sneaky political exposition in 
during a teaching or something like that. Like this is not me trying to low key talk about the divided states of America just a little bit. But like I, first, I'm woefully just like I'm not qualified to have this conversation. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a pastor. So uh, all this is is my attempt to invite us to Jesus's words. This is just my attempt to bring us to a place where we recognize the reality around us. 66 million, our neighbors, ourselves feel like this is an appropriate response. Is this actually a way forward? And I think, based on some of the responses that you gave in your body, it's like, oh, like we're grieved by that number. And so to set the course for our time, on the docket for t today is um, peace and the way of Jesus. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We do this uh, because there's something about moving in response to God speaking. And so this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Let us read this together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So there's nothing remarkable that's gonna take place today uh, unless the Spirit so decides to stir our affections for Jesus in a unique way. Um, but we're just gonna work through that bit by bit. We're just gonna start with blessing and end with children. So let's, we've been here now for a number of weeks, and if you're a note taker, this is the title of this section, Blessed. You're welcome. So, so now that we've been here for two months, I would hope that we could all just come up and start to walk through the Greek texts and say, yeah, this is what a blessing is, this is what it isn't, and yet what, I'm, what I imagine is even as I come back to it, I consistently import all of the cultural significance that I attach to blessing, and so I just want to remind myself and us together what we're talking about and what we're engaging when Jesus is talking about blessing. See, when Jesus says, blessed are, he's not announcing some sort of conditional statement. This isn't you are blessed if and when you do this. And Jesus is also not making a command as though this is an imperative, like do this with a threat behind it. I don't know if you feel that sense, but there is an invitation and a declaration. There's an invitation to inhabit a new way and there's a declaration that this is the way things are in the kingdom of heavens. And the kingdom of, so think spatially with me, like what is heaven? Heaven is God's space, and the scriptures will orient us up, and there's a, 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 like a posture of reverence. So then, what's the opposite to heaven? Oh, we oh yes. So we want to say hell because that's the impulse. But in the scriptures, earth is the counterpoint to heaven. And so what is earth? You think, oh, maybe a globe or something? No, like earth is dirt. <laughs> It's literally the stuff. It's God's space and human space. And so when Jesus is making this invitation and this declaration, he's saying that the kingdom of heavens, how it is in God's space, is on offer. And in fact, some of you are putting it on display. This is what the Beatitudes are inviting us into. But this word blessed kind of throws us. And so what is this word? If you remember, the word blessed is this word makarios in, in Greek. Go ahead and say that with me. Makarios. Makarios. Lovely, yes. So 
Makarios, people have, uh, scholars have opinions on what this is. Some would say that it's kind of like a, a, a congratulatory moment. Like you just, someone has a, t- a, a child, Makarios. It's a, you know, like, I don't know, you're giving a toast at a party, Makarios, that kind of a thing. Whereas some would say it's more like happy is the one. And there's a, an, an author who wrote this book called The Good Life, and uh, Dr. Derwin Gray, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a great like pastoral reflection on the Beatitudes. He argues for this word happy, and I just think it's so entangled with the pursuit of happiness. I don't, I, I am not smart enough to disentangle that. So I prefer this, this little statement of God's favor is resting. And that's wordy and awkward, but God's favor be upon. God's favor be upon. And that's this idea of makarios, this, the way of God, the, the, the way of the kingdom of heaven, God's space is coming forward. And makarios, like you are inhabiting this. So blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. So in other words, you could read it, God's favor rests on those who make peace. And that's, what we're, that's what we're dealing here with blessed is God's favor. And so then what, what is this peace? We've been praying for it this morning. I think we have some sort of intuitive idea about what it could be. And, and I just, I appreciate this, this definition. And this will be a little bit more technical. This comes from a theologian and philosopher named Cornelius Plantinga. And Cornelius is, is I'm, he goes by Neil, in case you ever want to reach out to him, because Cornelius is a mouthful. But he, he is, uh, he was a president professor at Calvin, well, Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But he has this definition, just, this is a thick definition of peace. So let this, let this come to you. Shalom, or peace, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This is about God's space and human space coming together. The webbing together is peace. See, peace is not flimsy. It is not thin. It is thick and robust because peace is not merely about the absence of a thing, namely conflict. Peace is about the fullness of the heavens and the earth coming together. This is the scripture's definition. This is how it works out and works toward peace is the webbing together, the bringing together, the fullness of life. Because there's justice there. There's justice in this place called peace. And peace is, is not like a fallow piece of ground No, peace is this place that is filled with abundant life. It is about the fullness of a thing, not the absence of a thing. The fullness of God's presence, not the absence of conflict. Although the absence of conflict very well is a part of peace, it's not the fullness of it. How are we doing? Okay. This is, this is the invitation of the scriptures, by the way, is that in Jesus, there is peace to be had. He says, my peace I give to you. So if you are entering into the way of Jesus, and you're trying to follow Jesus, and you're feeling stuck in your pursuit of Jesus, perhaps peace will be something that can dislodge where you are and invite you into something new. And see, I, 
I think we could just stop right here and like take the bread and the cup, but it wouldn't get us to the making of peace part. And that's where Jesus is leading with me. So, so um, go, go with me back to page one of the biblical story because this is where peace kind of gets going. And what we encounter on page one of the biblical story is that there, amid deep darkness on these kind of chaotic, swirly waters, what in, in our translations we would read uh, in the place that is formless and void. In that place, do you know who shows up? Spirit. The Spirit of God is there, hovering over the face of the deep. And this is not like the Hebrew people making up a new story. They're actually conversing with their neighbors. There's other creation accounts. And what, what's happening in those other creation accounts is usually gory and messy, and it's more conflict coming out of conflict that eventually yields servitude. But for the God of Israel, it's different. In the midst of this chaotic, swirly place of the waters which represent turmoil, spirit rests. And then in that place, Yahweh speaks. And, and, and from within the chaos, there is like order that comes forth. And then in the different spaces, life comes forth. Even Leviathan, like that wild creature, yeah, Yahweh has called forth that creature. Like this is, it's like the person who has a wild dog that you, you, they go crazy, but then they say something, and this, it's a silly illustration, but our neighbor has a wild dog and they say it and it comes back. But this is, this is the image of God is just bringing flourishing and goodness and order. And in that goodness, God establishes an ecosystem for flourishing and he calls it a garden. And this is a beautiful imagery. It's not like, you know, in 2020, everybody just started to become a gardener. So it's like everyone has a raised bed that now kind of looks broke in their backyard or on the side of their yard. And no, it's not that image. Gardening is a royal image. If you look in the ancient Near East, kings are the ones who have gardens. They are the ones who are bringing order to the world in that specific way. So what does the, the creator God do? He establishes a garden, an ecosystem for flourishing. And who does God set up in the garden? Humanity male and female, to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation. This is Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and what you see in that place and what the rabbis who look back on that moment is they call that shalom. They call that peace. And the making of peace was moving that out. It was, it was bringing order to chaos. And if you fast forward to the end of the scriptures, what do you see again? You see this garden emerge. You see this garden city that's woven together, and, and Jesus, the exalted king, is, is reigning and ruling with the creator God as one. And who is with Jesus? Us. The bride of Christ is there. And just let that, let that imagery sink in. There is Jesus with Jesus's bride, See, I, I just want to pause here for a moment because so often we put a lot of stock in marriage, but marriage is nothing but a preview. You know, it's like um, if you see a preview to a movie, did you see the movie? No, you didn't see the movie. Does the preview really matter? It's helpful. See, Jesus is, this is, this is I know this could be a whole other series, um, the church is going to the movies. 
the church, regardless of what their marital or relational status is in this place, in the new heavens and new earth, Jesus is drawing together the collection of his body called the bride. That is the image to which it points. So it's like the preview. So we make a big deal of the preview. Maybe we should make a big deal about the movie, the actual climax to that reality. That's another time, another teaching, another sermon series. Peace is the offering, though. This is what the whole story, from the beginning to the end, the story is about peace. And Jesus shows up and he's making an announcement about this peace. And if peace is the fullness of every kind of good thing, then how heck do we make it? Like, how do we actually enter into this? And for this, I just want you to pull your eyes down a little ways into the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. And, and pick up with me in Matthew five thirty-eight. Jesus is going to unpack this for us. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. How are we doing? If anyone slaps you, has anybody been slapped recently? Okay, just me and Zach, a 16-year-old and a 3 Okay, I've been, I've been slapped by a toddler recently, so that's fun. Um, if anyone slaps you, on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And if that isn't enough for you, uh, let's just pick up in verse 43 because Jesus is going to take this impulse that's in us called retaliation and turn it into reconciliation. So verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, this undercurrent of division that pulls on us, it is strong, it is eager, and we're like, we're often just sitting there dangling with our feet in the water. And it's just pulling and pulling. And it doesn't stop churning. And if, you, if you're like me, even when a toddler, like, and you're, and you're like in, the, in my flesh or in my, I don't know, ego or something, like he slaps me and I'm like, how dare you? And it's just like, oh, you're three. Okay. In that moment, there is this like self-protecting impulse. And that's a silly illustration but I think this is real, like uh, something comes our way and it's this self-protection that is internally closing off and externally pushing away, maybe with great force. And yet in this moment, we're invited to something different and, and the, the invitation, the invitation to turning away from violence actually has a good reason and, and somebody who took a lot of violence into himself, Nelson Mandela, has this to say about why we would do well to turn away. He says this, when we dehumanize and demonize our opponents, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and seek to justify violence against them. So just, the end of that, we are seeking a place to stand in our anger and assault the person who has assaulted us. And notice how, how Mandela describes it. We abandon the, the possibility and we seek to justify. Jesus calls 
his church to another way. Jesus calls those who have an interest in the kingdom of heaven to another way, and it's countercultural, and it's counterintuitive, and it's this movement of nonviolent enemy love. And later on in this series, we're going to get into a Christian response of nonviolence. But just to kind of give us a taste of what that looked like, your favorite Mennonite theologian, John Howard Yoder, for the win right here, as you, as you know and love, Yoder has this to say. He says, by refusing to extend the chain of vengeance, these are, these are great words, by, extend, by refusing to extend the chain of vengeance, we break into the world with good news. See, the type of movement in the world that finds its rootedness in Jesus is the movement that does not extend vengeance. And in not extending, it actually is extending another thing. It's this weird metamorphosis of nonviolent enemy love that actually extends good news out into that space. And the argument that Yoder and other people like him are going to make is that the good that you do through nonviolence is actually allowing the evil of the world to die in yourself because you have died to death with Jesus and you know that there's life that can come in the place of death. Nonviolence in the Christian tradition is actually a place where you embody the gospel. And this type of movement is seen in Jesus. I love how a New Testament scholar, Rebecca Eklund, I love how she says this. She says, to be peacemakers then means to actively participate in ushering in the world of shalom, making whole whatever is broken. I don't have this in the notes here, but um, there's an art form and this art form, is, it's a Japanese art form that has come in, I don't know, into popularity. And there are, are where there's broken pieces of ceramics and even now like pieces of glass. And I don't remember the name of this art form, so you're going to have to Google it later. That's just real. But if you do remember it, you can talk about it. It's a, like a popular sermon illustration, so I wanted to avoid it, but it's so beautiful. Like, what does it actually look like to make peace? Well, this, these pieces of brokenness are actually then brought to someone to have it repaired. And that what they repair it with is this gold. Like, they, they take glue and gold and they put it together, and what comes out the other side are these pieces of art that become not just a nice piece of decor, but it's used in people's daily life. And it all started when someone sent their ceramics away to be fixed and they put staples in them. And they brought them back. And not only was it not functional, but it was cumbersome and ugly. And, the, and so they then a local craftsman went through this this process, and the process of making it beautiful, and not just beautiful, but actually able to be put into use again, was almost as strenuous as the process of making the original thing. See, the, the making of peace is not an easy process, and it can be beautiful. And yet, our failure to actualize peace, I don't think it's a commentary on the evilness of peace or that it's futile to do peace. I think more it's like an invitation, a call to action to encourage good and actually then to restrain evil. And I actually, maybe it's silly and naive, but I have this conviction that practicing Christians can actually offer something beautiful to the world. 
Like I, I, um, I like, I'm kind of a dreamer. And so um, it gets me in trouble because sometimes I'm like, well, let's just do this new thing because I um, also can get distracted and not finish the thing that I've also been doing. So anybody who else who has that going in your life and you've lived longer or you just know more, please share. How the heck do you do it? Um, here's my point, and I'm illustrating it in this silly example, is that sometimes in an effort to just chase after one thing after another, to do it and do it and do it, it's almost just like it's never going to happen. And so we don't get to the rootedness of the healing that's there and it just remains on the surface. It's like staples in a ceramic and it doesn't actually bring the healing that we want. And so the place that we get to experience this peace feels odd because what I'm used to doing is feeling that peace on the surface. I'm used to just, like, if it's okay emotionally and I, like, is, I can take a deep breath, then I think it's resolved. But there's something deeper still that needs to take place. And so I just invite us to listen to how the New Testament articulates the reality of this deep peace that we can inhabit. This comes from Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, For he, this is Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is potent for us today and even more so to the audience to whom Paul is speaking. These are Jews and Gentiles, ethnic hostility that runs deep into the fibers of these communities. And Paul is saying that Jesus has come to establish peace. He's come to bind together the kingdom, God's space and human space to bring it together in himself. And it is costly. Do you notice in verse 16 there what the means of this was? to reconcile both of them through the cross. See, this, this city, Ephesus, it was full of factions and there's regional deities, there's loyalty to Rome, there's emperor. If you read in Acts, you see that there's riots because this small, this marginal, upstart Jewish sect called the Way ends up turning the city, the community, upside down. The economic function, the social function of the city are flipped on their head and the way of Jesus becomes this flashpoint because of the invitation, the influx of people because of peace. I don't, I don't know if there's any other way to describe it other than that Jesus held peace for people who constantly felt turmoil and yet the people who then come into that place that place called peace, who's Jesus himself, they still carry the turmoil of the world in their bodies. I don't know if this feels familiar. Do you think the church carries the turmoil of the world in her body? I, I feel it. You know, the people around you are mostly new. If you feel new here, it's because you are and so is everyone. Because the hurt of the world is carried in our bodies and yet Jesus in the place of, of peace is actually bringing us into peace. 
It's not clean yourself up, get some peace, and then come and take a rest. No, it's join me. You belong in this space. And as we are with Jesus, it slowly starts to shift our motivations. Things actually, like we begin to believe more that Jesus is actually being honest with us. And then slowly but surely we begin to like move toward him, which means that we leave some things behind. We allow offense to come. So I, I've not been following Jesus for a long time, and yet it's not a short amount of time. Basically, 10-ish years. And I think about the type of person I was when I first encountered Jesus and the type of person I am today. And I need Jesus' peace just as much now as I did then. This weekend, I was home with the boys, and Jess was in Michigan for a funeral. And um, uh, most of my illustrations come from my, my three-year-old, who's a vivacious young man. And, uh, you know, if it's not, like, slapping, it's other things. And he's not, like, it's not as though I'm, like, sitting there going, like, poke, 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 poke. It's all of the world is, like, coming. And as the noise raises, it's like his body is vibrating. And it just then, like, spills out. But he's not alone because as the noise elevates, it, like, I feel it. And in a moment where, like, both of us are not in a good place, there's, like, a monitor getting smashed on a bed. It's, like, the little antenna's going, and it's all broken. And I'm there, and I look at him, and I just go, are you effing kidding me? And this is what, it was not hard to say that. It came out like I say it every day. By the way, I don't go around every day dropping F-bombs. And I was like, what in the world? And then it's like, He's scared because I just yelled. I'm scared because I just yelled. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm my dad. And then it's like this whole thing just comes up. And it's like we're sitting there. And five minutes later, I'm like, buddy, it's a monitor. We can get another one. I'm so, like, and so I don't know how many times I apologized this weekend, but my point, my point is this, that there is a hostility from the world that we carry. And it's not like the world is even, It's actually in us. And it's here, and I need Jesus' peace to attend to this. So it's not like Jesus is saying, hey, go and make peace, and then it's all going to be okay. Jesus is actually looking at each and every one of us and us collectively and saying, I want to establish peace in your heart, and I want it to invade every part of you and this community and beyond that. This is a different type of wholeness and fullness, not just the absence of conflict. I would surely take not that little yelling match with the toddler. That would be great. I think everybody, are you, unless you're, do you want conflict? Maybe. I don't know. But like, I didn't want that. I wanted the fullness of life in that moment. I wanted the webbing together of like justice and delight. But what I, like, I need to recognize daily is that it is costly. Like it actually comes through a cross, but then it continues in the shape of a cross because it's not as though it was done at that moment, but that it was beginning because the invitation to make peace in some sense is an invitation to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This is the place of the way of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. So this is our last section you may have a translation that says sons of God. 
And it's not that one translation is better than the other or that children is more inclusive or that it captures the idea. Sons of is a way that the Bible talks about these people do this thing. These people participate in this. If you know James and John, they're called sons of thunder. It's not a compliment. They like go to a place that doesn't want to receive the way of Jesus and they're like, yo, Jesus, you want us to, you know, like call it down, the fire? sons of thunder. They're the sons who participate. They're the people who do this. And so when Jesus is saying that those who participate in this thick web of, of like peace, the webbing together of justice, that they are the ones who participate in the familial pattern. Like this is the way of our family. This is what we do. We endure that hardship to enter into this new way. And so I just want to bring these questions to us. What if, what if God's chief interest today, like what if God's chief interest in your life this very moment is to simply manifest peace through you? And I'm not talking about like, I don't know, like a new age thing of like, you got to manifest that feeling. You got to actualize that. Like, no, literally display through your body the reconciliation that you have to God in Christ? What if the thing, the chief interest that God has in your life is to manifest his peace? Because what is peace? Is it just the absence of conflict? Not fully. Or or is it just like good vibes? Maybe. No, peace, it's not just the absence of a thing, but the fullness of it. It is the knitting together, the webbing together of heaven and earth in our lives and through it. So this is a piece that we're invited to participate in.